This is the Robert J. Morgan Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Robert J. Morgan, and thank you for tuning in. Years ago, I wrote a book called The Red Sea Rules, based upon the story of the Israelites going through the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. And that book has gone all over the world, and total sales are about a million copies. It's been used for Bible study groups everywhere, and I'm so grateful for the response to it. A couple of years ago, we followed it up with a sequel, The Jordan River Rules, based upon the parting of the Jordan River, the story that is told in the first six chapters of the book of Joshua. Now, later this year, we are coming out with the last of this trilogy. It's called The Mediterranean Sea Rules, and this will be a book that I hope you'll watch for and look forward to and maybe use in your own Bible study groups and for gifts and for your own personal edification. It is based on the voyage and the shipwreck of St. Paul the Apostle. In today's broadcast, we're taking you to the platform of World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where I gave this message and went through the 10 Mediterranean Sea rules. I hope that you enjoy them, and thank you so much for listening. May God bless you with this material from the book of Acts, the last two chapters, 27 and 28, the Mediterranean Sea Rules. And then number eight, don't underestimate the 1%. Look at verse number 37. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach, and they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea, and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to, uh, to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest of us were to get there on planks and on other pieces in the ship, and in this way, everyone reached land safely. Now, if I had time, I would try to visually draw this picture for you, but you can see it in your mind. Here at dawn, it was raining, it was driving with the winds, and it was cold, and the ship began breaking apart, and people jumped overboard, and those who could swim swam to the bay, but the ones who couldn't, they clung to pieces of lumber and driftwood, but they got there. They all arrived there on safely. All, how many? 276. Soldiers, passengers, crew. 276. Now, this is, Luke gives us that detail, but why is it so important? How many Christians were on board? Well, at the very beginning of the chapter, it gives us three. Luke, who was there with Paul, 
and who wrote up this account in the book of Acts, and Paul himself, and someone who went along to help Paul. His name was Aristarchus, and he was from Thessalonica. And so there were three Christians among a group of about 300. So that would be 1%. All of them were saved because of the 1%. Now, earlier in the passage, it says that Paul said, we'd better not go on this voyage. But they wouldn't listen to him. And it says the majority decided to leave. The majority is often wrong. But how wonderful to be part of the 1% who followed Jesus. Now, this seems to be a biblical principle. If you go back to the book of Genesis, for example, and you look at the story of Abraham pleading for Sodom, Abraham said, Lord, if there are 50 people there, will you spare the city? If there are 40 people, if there are 30 people, if there are 20 people, if there are just 10 righteous people in that city, will you spare the city? And the Lord said, I will, but there were not even 10 righteous people. We don't know the population of Sodom, but let's say it was a thousand. It would have been 1%. If 1% of the people had simply been worshipers of God, it would have changed everything in that city. And you remember Gideon had nearly 33,000 men to go into battle in the book of Judges. But the Lord said, that's far too many because you'll say that you won the victory with that many. And he pared them down until there were how many? 300. The Lord did his work with one percent. And Jesus said, there was a shepherd, and he had a hundred sheep, but which one dominated his attention until he found it? The one percent. One lost sheep out of 100. And then there is this wonderful passage in Matthew 13, where Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like leaven or yeast that a woman put into her bread. The little bit of yeast leavens the whole thing. Now, I made some bread last week, and it called for three cups of flour, three and a half, and one pack of yeast. And it would have been, I don't know what would have happened if I had had three cups of yeast and one package of flour. It wouldn't have worked. I've never tried that. Yeast is too expensive. But just one, now, the, the bakers, the professional bakers, I've looked this up, they say the correct proportion for yeast to dough is right at 1%. So this is saying that 1%, if only 1% of the people are followers of Christ, they have a huge influence in the whole, they will leaven the whole thing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is more than 1% of us still in this country who are servants of Jesus Christ, and I think he's going to do something in this nation. It's all right to be in the minority. As long as we stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him to use us 
I've got stories about this. I don't have time to tell. But very often, those in the minority who will stand up for Jesus, they find that message begins to spread and revival can happen. The second great awakening started at Hampton Sydney College in 1788. Everyone, there were about 100 people between students and faculty on that college. They were all atheists or agnostics except for one student, Richard Carey, and he was a believer. And soon there were two believers, and then three. And then a revival broke out on that campus that began spreading to other campuses up and down the eastern seaboard. And at the same time, the camp meetings were taking place in Kentucky. And the second great awakening swept over the United States because of 1% of the student body at that college in Virginia. So don't underestimate how the Lord is going to use us. And number nine, shake the serpent into the fire. Now, poor Apostle Paul. He had wanted to go on his fourth missionary journey, and instead he was arrested in Jerusalem. He sent two years in Caesarea. They put him on a ship. It sailed into a hurricane. He nearly drowned. If we could have seen him, he would have looked like a drowned rat, shivering and cold and barely surviving. And then the next thing that happens to him, he no sooner gets onto the land and drags himself up on the coast than he's bitten by a snake. Did you know that? Look at chapter 28 and verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for he, though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire, and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall over dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their mind and said he was a god. Paul was pretty cool. I mean, if, if a viper, can you imagine? Here he's just putting some wood on a fire and a viper jumps out and bites you and his fangs go into your I would have gone running and screaming and hyperventilating. I can just imagine what I would have been like. I have panic attacks anyway. That would have been. But Paul just shook the thing into the fire. There is a lesson there for us. In life, there are many things that come and bite us, and we just have to shake it off. My wife, Katrina, she's in heaven now. But I would get upset about something. I'd be angry or mad or depressed or anxious or something. She'd say, oh, Robert, just shake it off. I can still hear her saying that. Just shake it off. And that's true. You can't let bitterness or anger or frustration or self-pity or any of these things cling to you. They'll come out and bite you, but you got to shake them off into the fire.
You've just, we have to go through life shaking things off or else they accumulate and they will poison us. If you allow something, you can't go along. Can you imagine leaving here and going out into your week with snakes dangling from your hands? Well, that's what bitterness, that's what anger, that's what anxiety, that's what worry, that's what anger, you know, when you're mad about something. You've just got to, you've got to learn in the power of the Holy Spirit to shake it off. And especially the serpent. The devil will find a lot of ways of attacking you. But in the name of Jesus Christ, you got to shake him off and go on. He cannot really poison you. He can bite you. But he can't poison you, so you got to shake him off and go forward in the victory of Jesus Christ. He can give you the victory. He's the evil one. Now, this phrase, the evil one, occurs any number of times. Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And most translators and commentators say that this is better translated, deliver us from the evil one. The devil is always looking to damage us or our families. And at the very end of his ministry, in the great prayer that he prayed, Jesus said in John 17, Lord, for my disciples, I pray not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would deliver them and keep them safe from the evil one. And in Ephesians 6, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. He not only bites you, he shoots arrows at you. John said, I am writing to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. He said, and this is one of the most remarkable verses, it's in 1 John chapter 5, we belong to Jesus. But the devil has all of the rest of the world at lies under the influence of the evil one. But we're the children of God. He says, the one who is born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. And the Apostle Paul said, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. So it's very important for us to learn. And the power and with the authority of Jesus Christ to say, Satan, you think you've hurt me. I am shaking you off and going forward in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. So learn this little lesson here from Paul and shake it off. And then number 10, look around then for what Christ wants you to do next. You come out of the storm, you're on Malta now, and what do you do? You didn't expect to be here. This wasn't on your itinerary, but here you are. What do you do now? You just look around, and you will always see what the Lord Jesus wants you to do next. Look at verse number 7 of the 28th chapter. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. 
When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies that we needed. And so Paul left there. He went on to Rome. He made it there but was placed under house arrest with soldiers guarding him. But he just did what came next. He wrote the prison epistles from Rome. He wasn't able to go travel, couldn't even leave his house, but he could write. And he wrote Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians and the little book of Philemon. And he also evangelized. He had a captive audience, those soldiers. And they were soldiers from the imperial regiment, Nero's own soldiers. And Paul said to the Philippians, he said, don't worry about what has happened to me. It has turned out rather for the furtherance of the gospel because, because of my chains, the Praetorian Guard has been evangelized and soldiers now are going all over the Roman Empire with Christ, places I could never have gone alone. So whatever your situation, recover quickly and look around and say, Lord, what do you want me to do next? One of the greatest pieces of advice I've ever heard, it came from Elizabeth Elliot and her writings. I love Elizabeth Elliot's writings. She said, just do what comes next. If you are anxious and worried, don't sit around and brood and fret. Just look around for something to do and do what comes next. And she gave a little poem, and I'm going to read it to you. Many a question and many a fear, many a doubt has its serenity here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrows, O child of the king. Trust them to Jesus and do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who placed it before you with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe beneath his wing. Leave the results to him and do the next thing. So these are the lessons that we can draw out of the voyage and the shipwreck of Paul. Let me review them. When your plans collapse, make sure that you don't. Trust the slow work of God. Speak your mind without losing your leverage. Let divine grace hold you together. Jettison, hindering cargo, and expect God to do exactly what he has said, and then go and minister in the moment. Never underestimate your influence as part of the 1%. Learn to shake the serpents into the fire, and then look around to see what the Lord wants you to do next. Now, all of this is predicated on the fact that Paul knew the Lord Jesus. It may be that there is someone here and you have never received him as your Savior. Somehow you aren't sure if you were to die right now, if you'd go to heaven. And Jesus died and rose again in order to make that a viable and a certain truth in your life. If you will simply receive his offer and say, dear Lord, I want to belong to Jesus right now. There comes a time in our life when we have to make that decision, and we bow our heads and we say something like this, Dear Father, I can't control this life anymore, and I'm tired of trying. I want to repent of my sins, give myself to you, 
receive the gift of your abundant life and know that I'm going to heaven because Jesus died and rose again for me, I here and now receive him as my Savior. And when you do that, and you do it sincerely, then everything changes in your life. The Bible says we become new creatures in him. The old is gone, the new has come. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you are walking with the Lord Jesus, and the one who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And if you've never prayed that prayer, you may be in this room or one of the other rooms, or you might be at home watching online, but I urge you with all of my heart to pray that prayer and make that decision today and give yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself to you. It is the best life you can ever find. It is in Jesus alone. And then you can pray the prayer that I offered last night at the beginning. Jesus, Savior, pilot me over life's tempestuous sea. Unknown waves before me roll, hiding rock and dangerous shoal. Chart and compass come from thee. Jesus, Savior, pilot me. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media. Recording, engineering, and audio editing is by Jared Brummett. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler takes each of these episodes, condenses them, adds an opening outline, and posts them as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com, where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and may God be with you until we meet again.